On this week's 51%, we're talking women in sports. Professor Amy Bass of Manhattanville College shares her thoughts on the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. We speak with two-time Olympian Trisha Mangan as she heads to the slopes. And Ithaca College professor Ellen Starowski discusses the upcoming 50th anniversary of Title IX. We are not fulfilling the gender equity mandate. There's still a great deal of work to be done. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. We've got a great lineup of interviews for you today. It's all about women in sports. And where else would we start besides the Olympics? Just as we wrap today's show, competition launched for the Winter Games in Beijing. It's the second edition of the Games to be impacted by the coronavirus pandemic after the long-delayed Tokyo Olympics last summer. But the playing field is certainly different, and it came with its own challenges to navigate. Our first guest today is Amy Bass, a professor and author at Manhattanville College in Purchase, New York. She's been a commentator for WAMC, but she won an Emmy for her work with NBC Olympic Sports on the London Olympics in 2012. Bass recently shared with me her thoughts about the latest edition of the Games. I think that apprehension is affecting teams right now. Um, I think that one of the things that we learned in Tokyo is that these athletes are incredibly isolated because of COVID protocols. They're not traveling with their families. They don't have their, you know, their cheering crowds there, which is, you know, fans are an important stakeholder in sports. So I think some of the, you know, psychological tension that we saw around a star athlete like Simone Biles is something that I think we should be on the lookout for in Beijing, especially because we have some of those really intense pressure sports like figure skating. You know, if your head's not in the right place, your sport suddenly becomes very dangerous. Well, who should we be looking out for these games? Any athletes that you think might have a solid chance from Team USA? I think Nathan Chen is our is our headliner always didn't do what he wanted to do in 2018 in Pyeongchang. Um, but I would also put the one and only Chloe Kim on that list. She took gold in Pyeongchang, took a break. She had a I think she had a broken ankle. She tried college and now she's back and she looks pretty unbeatable. I hate saying that in a sport as sort of crazy as half pipe, but Chloe Kim is definitely someone to watch. Uh, Michaela Schifrin is someone to watch, obviously. She got two medals in Pyeongchang. She took a third overall World Cup title the year, a year later. She's also had a lot of ups and downs. She lost her dad. She's been really forthcoming about managing grief and managing grief in terms of its physical and mental impact on on being a world-class skier. But she's awesome. You know, she's 26 years old now. She's back for another Olympics. And I think that she's something amazing to watch. Um, And the other thing that I would put up there is women's hockey. And we can talk about hockey, you know, as just a great Olympic sport. Obviously, one of America's greatest sports moments uh, is men's hockey in 1980. But the rivalry between the Canadian and American women, I think, is one of the great sports rivalries. I feel like they're the Yankees and Red Sox of the Olympic Games. And I am all in for women's hockey. Last time they met, who won? The U.S. took gold and Canada got silver. Wow. Okay, so it's it's neck and neck. But aside from COVID, what are some new things coming to the Games this year? 
uh, we're seeing new percentages this year. This will be the most women ever to compete in a Winter Olympic Games. Up to 45% of the athletes are going to be female. Winter Games tend to have fewer women than their summer counterparts. That is changing. Um, the hockey tournament is actually one of the reasons. There are more men's teams who compete than women. So you've got you know 230 women's hockey players and uh, some 300 men. So the percentages, the gender balance, um, we're going to see some new sports launch. We're going to see some newer sports. So things like team figure skating is actually something that I find fascinating um, to think about men and women competing together for a team score um, for their nation. You know, sort of those new twists on sports that we're familiar with. And I think that we also have the United States in a position to think about sports that they're good at, that they didn't used to be good at, or that they didn't have a legacy. Um, you know, in Pyeongchang, we saw Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall win Team USA's first ever gold medal in cross-country skiing. I think the Nordic events are super exciting and more people should watch them. Jesse Diggins is back. Let's see what she does. Keegan has retired, but Diggins could become the first American, you know, to win more than one Olympic medal in cross-country skiing. And, and that's a cool thing to keep our eye on. I think that we have an intense political atmosphere surrounding Beijing. We have a pretty widespread Western diplomatic boycott of these games. We have issues like Hong Kong and the Uyghurs and, you know, human rights in general, front and center. We have China coming off of, um, you know, sort of a spectacular games in 2008. So what kind of presentation of, of the country and of the city of Beijing is going to come forward? And then we have new sports. And I, I think that new sports are, are always something that can, can be a game changer because you may not know what the next big thing is going to be. There will be notable absences. The U.S. women who were, you know, the, the revolutionaries who got women's ski jump on the Olympic program, they didn't qualify. Uh, so now we get to see, you know, what is, what is Germany going to do with the absence of the Americans? So I, I think that you have to wait and see and you have to go with, with stories that pop up that you weren't expecting. There's going to be some stories that we know. Uh, again, Nathan Chen, men's figure skating. Um, the return of someone like Sean White, not as a favorite, but as someone who's just sort of trying to say goodbye to the sport that they helped build. You know, there will be new stars that we don't even, we haven't even met them yet. That was Amy Bass, professor of sports media and chair of the Division of Social Science and Communication at Manhattanville College. Our next guest actually spoke with me from Germany while awaiting her flight to Beijing. Trisha Mangan just competed at the Alpine Ski World Cup and is participating in her second straight Winter Games. In 2018, she took ninth in the Alpine team event at Pyeongchang, and this time around, she's slated to compete in at least women's Alpine combined. She's just 24 years old, but she started skiing near her home in Buffalo, New York at the age of two. I grew up skiing there with my five siblings and parents um, when I was pretty young and started racing around six. We skied at this little hill called Hollymont in Ellicottville, New York. And yeah, I just um, did a million sports when I was younger, but ultimately liked skiing the most and have definitely skied on a lot bigger hills than Hollymont now. But I think that being from Buffalo is definitely a big part of my story and has kind of shaped my road to the World Cup a lot. And now heading into my second Olympics, I leaned on my community a lot for support this year. So it feels really nice to be able to achieve this goal and to share that with all of them as well. When did you know that you wanted to pursue skiing professionally as an athlete? Yeah, people always ask me this question and I don't know. I like never when I was younger was like, I'm going to be an Olympian or like 
I want to be on the U.S. ski team. Like, I didn't even know what the U.S. ski team was. I really was just focused on like trying to beat my twin brother and just get a little bit faster. There was never like these big, huge goals. I think I've always been a little bit hard on myself. So maybe I was like, I'm not good enough for that, but I've always worked really hard. So I think that it's just put in little steps. And then over the years, it's like, oh, I did this, that's cool. And then it's like, oh, I made it this far. And then, yeah, here I am today. This year, I actually focused on the speed events, which are downhill and super G. And then at the Olympics, there's also the combined, which is one run of downhill and one run of slalom. What is super G for those who don't know? <laughs> um, so yeah, the speed events are like, and downhill is like the straightest, not that many turns. You're in your talk a lot of the time. And then super G is also a speed event, but it's, there's a couple more turns. So it's not just like going straight down. It's a little bit more technical. So what's been the, I guess, the process of preparing for that? I mean, that must be some pretty insane work. Yeah. Preparing for the World Cup or the Olympics in particular? I guess both. Well, that's good insight because most people are like, oh my gosh, you're, it's crazy to prepare for the Olympics. But in reality, the World Cup, like our, our season regular is probably actually a little bit harder because there's more girls there than there'll be at the Olympics. So there's been a lot of work that's gotten into this year. There's a lot of training, a lot of physical conditioning, a lot of time on snow, lots of travel. <laughs> I've definitely um, this year tried to focus uh, more on my consistency because my like top level speed um, is good. But in order to like perform on the World Cup, you need to be fast all the time <laughs> um, for the whole run. So yeah, consistency has been a big thing for me. So what's it like returning to the Olympics this year? I mean, is it a little less nerve wracking maybe or? Yeah, it will definitely be very different. My aunt told me the other day, she was like, people who get to the Olympics twice or like the Super Bowl or something big like that always say that the first time is a blur and they don't remember anything. And then the second time they're able to enjoy more. And I think that will probably be the case because the first time it was like, so much like oh my gosh like there's so much pressure and like it's really stressful uh, or it was for me last time and then this time I definitely know to kind of appreciate being there and take in everything and enjoy the moment a little bit more and I think that you can still do that while working really hard which yeah maybe I didn't know last time. Are there ways in which you see your sport changing? Oh, that's a great question. I hope that it changes. Change is always good. I think that there are changes with events, like there are more parallel events um, where people compete next to each other. And I think that is to attract more viewership um, and to make it a little bit more exciting, which is great because the more popular our sport will be, um, the better for athletes because more sponsorships and deals and everything. Yeah, I think that everyone's always pushing the limits of sports. So I think that, yes, it's definitely progressing. You mentioned that, you know, Buffalo shaped a big part of your story as well. Can you go into that a little bit more for me? Coming from Buffalo, even when I was really young, I always knew that there were the states like Vermont and Colorado, California, where the racers skied so much more. I think that this definitely added to me not really thinking like I was ever going to be or not really thinking that I was very good and just keeping the focus on like working hard. I definitely had an underdog mindset when I started to compete more nationally. 
And I think this really fueled me because it kind of took away expectations because I was like, oh, I'm from New York. Like nobody thinks I'm going to do well, but like I know how hard I've worked. So I definitely think that was like a really big part of my success when I was younger. Underdog mindset has been a big part in my ski racing career so far. Was there a first competition that you did where you realized like, oh, I'm really good? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I went to U16 nationals. So I I won like a couple super G's for Eastern region, but even then I was like, oh, like there's just one run, who knows? And then I went to U16 nationals and I got absolutely crushed. And then I remember thinking like, oh, I want to come back for next year and like actually do well. And I really ramped up um, the training that year. And then I went back the next year and did really well. I remember I got fourth into GS and I like after coming down the first round I was kind of in shock and then the next day I kept doing well and ended up second and then that's when I qualified for like the junior national team so that was definitely a very big turning point I was like wow I didn't know I was gonna do that well so yeah I think that was a big turning point in my career. Just lastly, uh, for people who maybe want to get into skiing or for younger people who are looking about how they can get into the sport what is your advice for them? I think that there are so many race programs. So I would just say that don't be discouraged if you're starting in even a small ski resort race program. It's so much fun. And most of all, the community that skiing has is super, super special um, and really unique. So I think that that is a great reason to join it and hopefully they love it. And yeah, it's an awesome sport. So I would encourage anyone to try it out. Trisha Mangan is a two-time Olympian with Team USA, specifically the U.S. Olympic Alpine Ski Team. Trisha, thanks for taking the time to speak with me, and best of luck. Yeah, of course. From north to south, east to west, and all over the United States, we come together today to celebrate girls and women in sport. Of course, it's not just the Olympics driving headlines this time of year. Ash Barty just became the first Australian woman to win the Australian Open since 1978. The Super Bowl is set, and college basketball championships are just around the corner. In case you missed it, though, February 2nd was the Women's Sports Foundation's 36th annual National Girls and Women in Sports Day. To celebrate, hundreds of community programs, schools, and professional sports teams across the country are hosting events to get people active and recognize the achievements of women in sports. This year, the foundation itself is hosting a virtual 5K throughout the month of February, as well as a 50-mile challenge stretching to the 50th anniversary of Title IX on June 23rd. Title IX, of course, is the federal civil rights law that, from the court to the campus to the classroom, prohibits sex-based discrimination in any school that receives funding from the federal government. So how is Title IX holding up 50 years on? To learn more, I spoke with Ithaca College professor and author Ellen Starowski, who has co-written a number of reports on Title IX, gender equity, and more for organizations like the Women's Sports Foundation and the National College Players Association. 
in terms of women, you know, 50 years is, um, is a terrific time. Uh, you come into your own, you gain more power, um, you look ahead to see how you can take the wisdom of the previous 50 years and really mobilize it to do good in the future. And I think in a lot of ways that this anniversary gives us an opportunity to think about that. At the same time, uh, just looking at the state of gender equity in school sports and in college and university athletics, there are all kinds of signs that show that we are not fulfilling the gender equity mandate um, and that there's still a great deal of work to be done. I was going to ask about that, like, how do you feel that Title IX is being enforced? What are some of the ways that, you know, there's a gap in equity in college sports? Yeah, well, I think we're seeing it across the board in every in every area of athletics, whether we're looking at proportional opportunities available to female athletes relative to their enrollment, we're seeing very large gaps in terms of how many opportunities female athletes could have. Um, we're seeing um, tremendous gaps that still remain. If we look um, over the span of the 50 years and we go back to um, the 25th anniversary or we go back to the 40th anniversary, the spending on recruiting has basically largely remained unchanged over that entire span of time. Um, in terms of athletic scholarships, there's an expectation that schools are gonna offer athletic scholarship support that is proportional to uh, the number of female athletes in an athletic program within 1%. Um, there are many schools in their EADA reports, the, the EADA report being that public document that people can go to to see how spending occurs in athletic departments. And what, what we're seeing in those documents is that there are many schools that are really quite off the mark um, from that 1%. You know, we do see that some schools are closer in terms of their gender equity patterns. If we look at non-football playing schools versus football playing schools, uh, junior colleges compared to NCAA institutions, for example, there, there, there are some sectors where we're seeing something that looks closer to what, what it should look like, but there's tremendous work that needs to be done how do we go about implementing some changes to make sure that these things are better monitored and enforced? I think one of the number one things is to make sure that the enforcement mechanism that's supposed to be in place in colleges and universities and in high schools to make sure that that mechanism is working. Um, it was very interesting to me to find reports from the federal government that were showing that there were still schools maybe just four years ago that still were not designating Title IX coordinators at their schools. You know, this was a requirement that was expected in the 1970s. And to think that we still have some schools that have not even designated a Title IX coordinator. And then along with that, to have large percentages of employees who still don't know who their Title IX coordinator is. And that really is a sign that the commitment to enforcing Title IX um, on the ground in schools is, is just not happening the way that it should. Um, and even in places where Title IX coordinators are designated, 
there um, remains just a large amount of either misinformation or lack of information about what Title IX requires and what it doesn't require. A wonderful former student of mine who's in law school at Drexel, we did a study of Division I Title IX athletics coordinators and just large portions of that sector Um, They're not educating people about how to read an EADA. Coaches and athletes are not receiving Title IX education. All of those things are things that that all add up because you can't hold an institution accountable to what they should be doing under Title IX if you just have people closest to, um, to the action, so to speak, closest to the athletic department that don't know what their rights are and what their obligations are. I guess broadening the subject a little bit, how do you view the overall playing field for women in sports right now? The expression, it's the best of times and the worst of times probably applies because there's absolutely no question if you think about the opportunities that were available for girls and women in the early 1970s, you know, we've just seen tremendous growth in all areas of athletics um, for girls and women. At the same time, we have so many places, and I think um, if we reflect back just for a moment in terms of the NCAA men's and women's tournament last year, and uh, those very stark contrasts in terms of unfair treatment, in terms of um, a, a premier, you know, this is the nation's premier women's basketball tournament. Um, for that kind of inequity to exist, and then also to have the NCAA external reports reveal that that the women's basketball tournament was not the only tournament, but in point of fact, there was systemic gender inequities across the entire system. That's really a wake-up call for everybody. And then along with that, though, is I think looking futuristically, not all people and not all women are served equally within the gains that are made. So if we look, for example, through a racial lens, African-American women have been largely invisible within the overall scheme of full opportunities. In sports like basketball and track and field, we've seen that kind of growth, but we, we have not seen that kind of growth across the board in terms of all of the, the, the large array of other sports um, that are available. Um, and this is very much in keeping nationally with the fact that women of color and African-American women have um, less access to sport opportunities overall. So that, that's an area that we really futuristically need to be addressing. We know that girls typically enter sports later and exit sooner than boys. What do you see as some of the obstacles for girls getting into sports, and how can we address them, particularly for girls of color? We need to be looking at our financial models and really adopting principles of equity and fairness. Um, You know, it's one thing to sort of have an idea of fairness. I think it's something entirely different when you begin to make decisions and hold yourself accountable to really see whether or not you're you're actually doing that on the ledger. And that's really where 
having principles of gender equity that are written down and having specific goals about what you want to achieve in a three and five year period of time. I think the, the other piece of it is that I think there is a bit of a disconnection between a general support. You know, I th Title IX has become sort of synonymous with gender equity, it also pulls on our general sense of fairness. So, you know, the vast majority of people that you talk to would say that they are relatively supportive of what Title IX's goals are. But what, what I found and where, where I think the conversation needs to happen is I think that female athletes in athletic departments, I think that, that their experience is actually different than that broad narrative. I think they notice that they don't get um, the same kinds of meals. They notice that their gear isn't as good or the way in which the fundraising happens for their programs is different and oftentimes puts more of a burden on them than what it may for some of their male colleagues. And certainly, I think one of the areas where we're going to see much more increased scrutiny is in the area of marketing, in the area of television contracts, um, in the area of promotion and athletic communications. Um, that whole area of publicity is something that has been in the regulations from the 1970s forward, but I don't think that it's really gotten the kind of scrutiny that I would suspect that we're going to be seeing in the years ahead. And the reason why that becomes so important is that, you know, just as a, a matter of media exposure, if you don't see um, female teams regularly, you don't know who to follow. Um, and, and we've seen all kinds of evidence from uh, women's gymnastics to women's basketball to um, women's volleyball to women's softball and many, many other sports where when audiences get um, exposed to those sports, we, we see that there are audiences for them. Um, but the mechanism to market those programs within colleges and universities has largely continued to be operating on a, a 20th century model rather than on a 21st century model. In terms of girls and women of color, you know, within communities, um, creating safe spaces for girls and women to um, access sport opportunities is incredibly important. Being able to preserve uh, sport programs within high schools is very important. Um, trying to have them publicly funded rather than pay for play models is incredibly important. There are other kinds of things we could talk about, but those are some of the things that really need to be addressed. Well, lastly, what are some of the benefits for women of playing sports? We can never underestimate the power of joy. I think all of us who um, have sport as a passion, we can all relate to the fact that at some level, um, we all got bitten by, um, by sport joy. Um, so that would be number one. Number two, what, what we know from the research, a, a woman's life is incredibly affected over the, the long term by her participation in sport. Um, we know in terms of long-term health, um, we know in terms of um, cognitive functioning, um, we know in terms of social life that being able to participate in sport can be incredibly important as a quality of life issue. So all of those things are things that um, we should take into account. Um, you know, the, the nation has a stake in this from the standpoint of 
of the health of our girls and women. Ellen Storowski is a professor of sports media at Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York. You can learn more about her work at the college's website. To learn more about the Women's Sports Foundation, find a national Girls and Women in Sports Day event near you, or to register for the Foundation's virtual 5K and 50-mile challenge, go to womensportsfoundation.org. That's a wrap on this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Amy Bass, Trisha Mangan, and Ellen Storowski for participating in this week's episode. To learn more about our guests or just the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know how we're doing and if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. The night down the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool no electricity hot rain on the concrete sweet